0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Red Mage Podcast. As always, I'd like to present the opportunity to check out my site at theredmagepodcast.com and consider supporting me on Patreon, making a purchase at the shop, or simply sharing this podcast with a colleague. With that out of the way, this week I'm discussing mental health with Ryan Castro-Miller, a writer and a graduate student working on his master's in family psychology. Ryan joins us today to bring insight on operations and the systems in place. This is part of the research stage and examining eSports as a soft case study of extreme work conditions in this season's project. Hey, Ryan. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks Thanks for uh, having me. So um, you're you're currently a graduate student
1: uh,
0: working on your master's in family psychology. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Can you tell me more about that? Uh, yeah, currently I um, am working at the class I'm actually working on right now is uh, family engagement. Hmm. Um, but yes, it's uh, human development with an emphasis on family psychology. And my previous, my bachelor's that I have right now was uh, also human development, but in um, social justice. So the two sort of merge. They, they merge quite a bit, actually. There's a lot of social social justice um interaction in family psychology you see you see it um every day when you're working in that field i worked in uh special needs which has a lot of uh, family psychology emphasis obviously um i worked in special needs for 12 years and yes all the all of that comes into play social justice uh everything sort of interfaces at one point or another
0: so, can you tell me a little bit more about the social justice aspect? Like, What does that involve? Is that
2: accessibility? Uh, yes, thanks for asking. It's a good question. Um, yeah, it, a lot of accessibility depends on social standing. It's, it's sad, but there's a lot of that. Um, a lot of that is reality right now. Like the better, not, not necessarily better, but the higher income Communities almost always will get the higher uh, quality resources, when it, especially when it comes to public schooling. See, wow! So there's there's quite a divide right there there.
0: Um, what are what are some of the
2: practices that go into place? Um, well, it depends on which uh, the area I was in was. Um, Special needs, uh, special needs classes for children. uh, Well, okay, so I I worked with a varying age degree, but um, special needs uh, behavior intervention, I worked the longest, and that was with children ages uh, middle school to 22. They aged out at 23 in the program I was working in. And that particular system is it's very weird because it has a lot of subgroups within it. You have uh, this particular, which I'm not going to name the institution, but um, it was a county uh, program that I worked for the longest. And this particular program, it, you had the main body of the county and then it was split up into little hub groups called uh PIUs which um uh, I mean PEUs which stood for uh principal educational units mm-hmm. and each one of those was like their own little fiefdom you had the guy you had the administrator running that and then um that administrator would uh would run would run one school that they would, their office would be in one school, but they would also be running about, in some cases, three to four other schools. So they would be traveling, and they would have uh, secondary staff to support them when they leave. So there would be instances where you would see the assistant principal much more than you would ever see the uh, the actual, the uh, not the actual, but the main principal. I
1: see.
2: And so, there were problems because there were issues where since if you had a, uh, um, a PEU that covered a large amount of schools and you had something happen at another school, well, then that principal has to travel. And if it's an emergency and so it's there, there's uh, some problems at hand. There.
0: How far apart are these schools? Are they like within the
2: same city or? Um, in this particular one, it was all within the same, uh, city. They're all, they're all, this particular place was all within the same county, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but this county is very, very large. Um, but yeah, they were within, I would say, uh, 10 miles of each other, but, um, but they were all, uh. Every PEU is different, though, because some I worked for some that were vast and it was only one principal and they were driving as far as like 20 miles to get to the school. And if there's an emergency and it's not your hub school, that's that can be uh, a delay in services needed. It, you could have something very uh, something bad happen, uh, which did happen um, in a different uh county program that I had worked for uh, in, uh, I will say, the region. It was Northern California. And the principal was busy handling an emergency at one school, and a child was suffering from a health issue at the core school. And by the time the principal was able to get there, because there was uh, a traffic problem, I think a, a big rig had jackknifed and there was just it was terrible there was a lot of stuff going on that one day and a big rig jackknife blocking the freeway so the t- the principal was 40 minutes late the um paramedics had already been called the parent, eh, and uh sadly the by the time the principal had got there he had to go straight to the hospital cuz the child had uh had needed to go to the hospital right away so it was it was just a very uh a very uh fractured system that led to a lot of, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if that these particular programs are still operating in that system. For the most part, I don't think so. I think some of them splintered and they're just, uh, they're splintering into uh, where it's maybe one PEU has three schools instead of five or 10, which I think is much more manageable Mm
1: -hmm. to
2: handle that. 'Cause one principle for ten schools is uh that's just lunacy. <laughs> <It's, Yeah. laughs> that that sounds pretty insane.
0: You know, part of that sounds like the people on the ground were kind of stretched thin.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: Cause you had your budget is so small. The education budget um in this country is very meager. And It doesn't, there have been reforms and there needs to continue to be reforms on as far as getting uh, funding for education. But um, yeah, you're stretching this already razor thin budget (laughs) and you're sharing it among X amount of staff and administrators and everybody in between. The The only people who operate outside of that budget are and this is going into a different aspect of the systems that um, you see. It, it's one thing about these systems is there's like several different things interacting at the same time. That's um, also goes into family engagement because you have you have your administrative aspect of this uh, this system, which is operating on on their level. You which to break it down as far as I from my experience the administration level is you have your your to go even farther you have like your head of supervisor supervisor of schools or superintendent of schools or whatever that region calls it It, it's different in different systems so you have your superintendent then you have you know your principal your vice principal in many special education systems i've worked in you the school would have the principal, vice-principal, and then the third in command would be your head psychologist because that's the person dealing with most of the problems. Because if you have a classroom emergency in a special needs school, especially one I worked in was uh, children with emotional disturbances, and you would have children who... Would everything would be fine? It would be just as your average everyday uh, middle school environment. They'd be working on a test, and then due to these emotional disturbances, these emotional uh, distresses, a desk would just be thrown. You'd have a kid taking a pencil to another kid, stabbing them in the in the arm. It, it's happened. We've we've seen it, and the first person to deal with it, of course, you have. Well, I'll break it down in a second, but. Because the first person to deal with it is the the aides <laughs> and then the teacher, and then because oftentimes the kids with these distresses, these big ones, they have one on one aides who are helping them integrate into each class, and I was one of those aides too for before I started specializing specifically with uh, children with uh, behavioral issues, but um, so. You'd have your, your principal, assistant principal, and then your vice, uh, I mean, your uh, head of psychology for, or your head psychologist for that uh, school. They would be the ones going into the classrooms when there was an issue. And oftentimes the f- one, the first of the administration it wouldn't be the principal, it would be the psychologist. And he would, he or she, it, we had two. Um, and they would also travel so if there was a psychology uh, like a uh, mental health issue they had to travel and go from school to school so you also had that and um so to keep going down through the line so then you had and this before we even get to the classroom structure so then you had your um your other specialists you had your uh, speech and language which in this particular program speech and language is covered was covered by the program itself, they, um, the county program, this particular county program, pay it had their own speech and language program. Some programs, smaller schools, can't afford that, so they have to go to third parties, special uh, special organizations that that aren't cheap, oftentimes, and that's that's when you get into the disparity. In uh, communities, but anyway, to carry on. So then you have you have your speech and language, and then when you get into other services, oftentimes speech and language is part of the school district and it's covered. They have their own program, they have their own teachers, and it's all integrated. Other things you have like um, behavioral aids. Uh, there's special organization or special uh, groups that have their own behavioral aids that they contract out to the schools and you have um specialists that specialize in just one particular special need like autism or cerebral palsy and then you then you get into um other specialists like uh physical therapy and so there's just this big umbrella of um systems with all within (laughs) one system and then when you get into the classroom you have your your aides, like I, I was an aide and then you have your um your teachers and then what this particular program i worked in we had a special inside the main school because the school was built kind of like an old school college campus where it had this circular hub and then all the classrooms are kind of connected and fed into the hub well, there was a little office in that hub and that was the behavior office. And anytime there was uh, an issue, we were just running out and going into a classroom and helping out and we were stretched thin. And then when other classrooms in the our other schools in the PEU lost their behavior intervention, then we had to try and go from classroom to class, I mean, from campus to campus during crisis, crises. So I, it's, there's some major problems in the system. That it's, and I think a lot of it has to do with budget, budget disparities.
0: Wow. That, that is, that is a lot. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the assumptions that are made that, May hinder or actually maybe present like problems, either in those systems or um, maybe even assumptions made by the general public.
2: That's a good question. There, there's a lot of assumptions in um, these. The assumptions vary themselves from community to community. When I was working um, for a school in Northern California, there was an assumption amongst, they, there were there was an assumption amongst some of the staff be, due to the lack of interaction, lack of engagement with from staff to parents or staff to family. Because uh, I hate to use parents in this term because oftentimes, it's the grandparents taking care of the kids or an aunt taking care of the kids or a brother or what have you so yeah we say parents just because it's the fell safe the fallback. it's just what we do it's been integrated into you know our collective language but um i like to say guardians i, I do but or or just families because that's just a nice generic coverall because anyone could be a family as long as you have legal guardianship but um I'm sorry I got off topic oh. for a second but um, yeah so going back to the assumptions so there's when there's a lack of communication between the um, staff and the the classroom staff uh, working with the students and the families themselves it does foster assumptions you have assumptions from the staff where in Northern California a lot of the assumptions I would hear you know, sitting in the break room or whatever, talking with people, hearing whispers and crap. You would hear uh, assumptions of, oh, they're uh, farming communities. It's it's a lot of our parents were farmers. It was a farming community, so they'd be, oh, they're they're uneducated. Their parents don't know any better, and blah blah blah. And then there would be this counter assumption with the some of the parents. Where oh yeah, this this principal must know what he's talking about. He must be he has a degree, so I'm not going to question him. So you would have this. It, sometimes it would lead to really bad decisions mm. and really bad, uh, really bad situations where communication just wasn't happening. And I think that's the main key: is you have to maintain communication. Otherwise, you will get those assumptions and the assumptions, they can be harmful, especially when you, in the case of the parents in the situation, when you're just not questioning the, well, let's say the authority, but you're not questioning the authority of these uh, people within these systems. You're just acting as if they know everything. You need to question it. Question everything. When your kid's concerned, question it. And as a, uh, educator, ask questions, engage, because that's your, your job. Engage other, make that, make the parents and families want to ask a question. Don't be, uh, standoffish or crossing your arms or, you know, making your body language imposing when you're, ha- well, now everything's Zoom at the moment, but, um, being open to your families and uh, letting engaging them more and asking questions and uh, it it's it helps erase those kind of assumptions.
0: It sounds like you know you had mentioned for a second just like Zoom, this mm-hmm. is like digital intermediary. Um, and what I what I found in my research and therapy is that sometimes like an intermediary like an avatar or something can help out because you could kind of use that to mitigate or put a little bit of distance.
2: Yeah. I I think there's, there's ways to do that, that, um, we did early. uh, I, well, not early on, but right before I uh, stopped working with in, in the special needs field. Um, not necessarily avatar but i would see more of a technolo- technology-based outreach as in uh, they started working on apps to mm-hmm. engage the family like if you have any questions uh download the app for and, and then you could arrange uh meetings with teachers with staff with principal it, it was very similar to the apps they have with um like Kaiser Permanente like it was very similar to like a medical insurance app but it was (laughs) which which in turn had you know of course this cold nature to it so yeah it's not necessarily an avatar but it was an interface that could act in a way where you if you did have parents who were apprehensive of talking to the teacher because they did have that assumption like oh this egghead knows way more than me. I don't want to talk to them or I'm intimidated or whatever. And how like that is, at least that's something, at least that is some kind of outreach, um, which I think would be better than nothing. But I do think that uh, as technology progresses, we're going to see more along the lines of what you're talking about, especially now as we get into Zoom, as we get into... Because we're seeing it in private industry with things such as ABC Mouse and, um, man, there's a bunch that I'm drawing a blank on. But those programs, they are uh, private and there's pay for play subscription things, but um, they do engage with avatars. And I think we're going to see that more in mainstream education as we go on. Mm
0: do you feel that like you had mentioned there's like this cold aspect is that the technology or the pushing of the
2: app uh well i think i think the it all depends really i mean it could be a cold aspect if you had that exact same information on a paper form you know a 25 page (laughs) form on a clipboard that would feel cold too so I don't think it's necessarily the app. It's the, uh, instead of having a human face connected to it, (coughs) like, excuse me, I believe you could change an app like that and add a, I don't want to use any copyright terms, but um, Bank of America has their app where they have like that AI person Mm. that, hi, I'm Erica, ask me a question or whatever (laughs) it says. I don't know any schools with the budget to implement something of that scale. But if you had something that a private service could offer where school systems could subscribe to that and it would have a similar AI interface, like, you know, hi, I'm Ed, the education pal, or something, you know, which, oh man, that, that seems like something that would actually happen. But, um, if you add something like that and you have it supplied by someone like uh i don't know they, I don't want to give out any uh, company name but if you had some company supplying that to all the you know school districts and the uh, the school systems i think that could eventually be something very helpful
1: mm-hmm.
0: so you know it seems like technology is going to have its its place there um what about things like games and in game-based learning?
2: I found, um, I found game-based learning to be very engaging and very helpful with the children I worked with. Um, there's actual programs. I I haven't seen this one in a while, but there was one called, uh, the Zach browser. And it was a, the Zach stood for zone for autistic children. And it was basically a uh, browser that would lock the computer and um, only appropriate material uh, was on there. And by appropriate, not just age appropriate or content appropriate, but with um, children with autism in mind, you also have uh, um, sensory overload issues to think of. And Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes just, a commercial for something like Pokemon or, or something even like a Tide Pod commercial could be, um, have an aggravating frame rate and it could cause a person with autism. To, and I also have autism. So I, I speak from experience. Um, you could, uh, you know, have a sensory issue with that or a sound or something. So this particular browser was tailored for that. The creator actually uh, had a child with autism so they created that just uh with that in mind Mm -hmm. so i I think things like that definitely i would like to see more definitely and more open source based this was an open source i used it all the time i used it for um well my my daughter i have you know three uh, 22 10 and uh two but when my uh, 10 year old was uh like three I used it when she first, nah, I think she's like four. When she first started using the computer <laughs> at a young age, I used, it, I used Zach Browser on there to uh, sort of lock her out from all the, and it was fine. It worked. It has access to uh, age-appropriate things. Um, and uh, I really wish there was more of a emphasis on that, especially open source, so anyone could get it. But I think until there is a revenue stream, a steady proof of a revenue stream, until that happens, we won't see much of that yet. Uh, but who knows, May, statistically, we are going to, we are already seeing an uptick in autism diagnosis, diagnoses, and it's going to, it's only gets, it's only getting larger. And um, because we don't really completely uh, even in this day and age, we don't really completely understand the causes, mm. and uh, it could just be it, it, there could be a myriad of things. And I don't want to get controversial on the because it is it, some people have issues with talking about that. But the regardless of uh, of any of those issues, the the fact stands: autism is increasing, and there will be a demand for for technological interfaces to help. And I mean, we're seeing that, but it's, you really right now at the moment, you're only seeing that when you work within those systems or if you have a child or with autism or you go to the uh, you know, conventions, well, I'm sure they're virtual at the moment, but really you were only exposed to those things uh, you're only exposed to those things at the moment when you seek them out, but I think eventually it's going to be commonplace to where you're driving down the street and you see billboards for things like that. Mm-hmm. For um, I think it's it, the cause has got to be bl- large enough to be seen as a crisis for uh, the market to catch up. I think. I mean, but that's just my.
0: I think that's a very valid statement um you know we're kind of we're starting to see that with mental health there's sadly because of um the coronavirus there's been a lot of depression and anxiety and there's been an increase in in suicides and it's really rough saying that looking at uh reports and everything Mm. um and just as i was starting to do this 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 podcast i've noticed that there's a lot more advertisements for mental health and yeah. you know before there's a lot of problems with stigma there's a lot of problems with finding resources um and there are a lot of problems with um accessibility what what do you think needs to be done in order to make mental health services more accessible? and easier to find?
2: That's a great question. I, Overall, from a utopia (laughs) vision, the major thing that would have to happen is a federal healthcare overhaul. If we could have a federal healthcare overhaul that creates a template for every state to work by uniform, uh, uniformly then I think we could see a major uh, increase in, in mental health care if we have a federal overhaul that helps emphasize that but um, from a state level California has they has their issues if you go if you travel outside to other states California seems like a blessing. <laughs> there's, there's other states where it's almost draconian trying to get any level of health care, let alone mental health care. California has their issues, but it is a lot easier. I, I speak from personal experience. I was in between jobs um, a few years ago And I went from my, um, the school system I worked with had a very good health system. And uh, after being uh, laid off, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of budget cuts and a lot of people were laid off. And I went into um, getting government assistance health care and getting mental health support through that was incredible incredibly hard you not only did you have to be on the phone with somebody for hours on it you had to literally like schedule and this is going on right now it's still going on but you had to have to literally schedule a two-hour a two-hour window to talk to the people just the administrate, just the administrative assistants who are getting you an appointment and then actually going in which I, I'm sure it's very different now, but I doubt it's streamlined. It's just all virtual. Um, you still had to wait a long time. And then you saw you saw a professional, which I don't know if it's a, any different, if it's changed, but the I'm not going to name the insurance carrier. I went through uh, with uh, the public uh, option. but um, it's just very strained it's incredibly strained because you have so many and, I, and living in LA, LA County, you have so many people in need of these systems. So you have one doctor to hundreds of patients. Mm-hmm. And whereas the current uh, healthcare I have now, which I'm not going to name, but it's, a, it's a, night, a night and day issue because they're a private carrier and they're, um, it's through my, through my work. And it's so easy to get mental health care. You just call the special number and then someone calls you and you hear within, you have an appointment within two, two days. Wow. Where you're lucky you have an appointment within a month when you're in the public system. So, yeah, I can speak from
1: experience.
2: It's an incredibly flawed system. And it's very obvious that there is a uh, income and community inequality just baked into the system. Wow.
0: You know, I've gone around a couple of um, online communities to kind of just see how, like, what's what's kind of going on and observe because we can't be in person so it's a a little bit of like virtual ethnography and just doing um some observations and it was painful reading how impacted it was for some people to get access to a clinician for like a specialist um someone wrote down that they had a a horrific breakdown were contemplating suicide and they were actively trying to seek to get help but they they couldn't because they weren't getting responses um no one was was kind of contacting them finally they were um you know they they had i guess some people had posted a couple of links for telehealth and they were able to do it through there but it was it was heart-wrenching
2: That's Mm -hmm. horrible. That's incredibly horrible. I I've heard similar stories even before the pandemic when I was living in San Francisco and um, as a film student there, uh, there were a few instances, especially when you have people uh, just finding themselves in the big city, people from uh, the Midwest or I, I was from the country, I was from a rural community. So I, I know what some people were going through. They were going through this incredible homesickness, going from small rural towns, ending up in the big city. And it's a culture shock. And so there were a few uh, people I knew who had some mental health issues. One, one girl had a breakdown in class. And another uh, person that I, would, that I was uh, shared several classes with he actually called the suicide hotline to, and I don't, I, I don't mean to laugh. The following story is just—it's so cliched that it's, it seems like a joke, but I promise it's not. He called the suicide hotline, and they put him on hold for four hours. I, I mean, not four four hours, but four hours. Like I think for like two hours or something, wow. and he. I think he only he only actually held for a couple hours and he called a friend. I mean, not a couple hours. He only held for, like, I think 20 minutes. And he called a friend on, a, like, a cell phone because he had called on the landline. And he had just left it there. He ended up being okay. Thankfully, he called, he called another friend who then called me. And then we all kind of went over. And when we went over to his house and we all talked and everything, and everything was cool he ended up calming down, but he had left the phone to the suicide hotline just to see. And he was still on hold wow. after we had been talking for like a few hours. So um yeah, it seems like a joke or some like sitcom plot, but the systems they that, that was nearly 20 years ago and the system is still not fixed. And it's, sadly I think it's only getting worse because you're seeing you're seeing a lot of money being siphoned out of these systems and put into frankly other broken systems so you know
0: when I looked into this particular case and tried to find the reason why it turns out is that there's there's been so many calls that and there's so little clinicians, and it it just seems like overall, um, this system like doesn't have enough, you know, personnel doesn't have enough resources. Um,
2: well, they're running on skeleton crews. I, I I mean, we know every healthcare system right now is probably running on. Well, I know for a fact because I, I have a daughter in the. Navy, who's in the um, medical field, and um, everyone's running on a skeleton crew. Boat. But yeah, it's good that you bring that up because people don't really think of the mental health aspect of, yeah, they're stretched thin because they have an even smaller budget. I, I, when you think of when you compare the budgets of your surgeons and your, um, you know, just healthcare in general. And you compare that to easy to access public mental health, you're talking night and day. So so yeah, it's it's really good you point that out because uh, it's it's a system that needs a major overhaul, and a lot of a lot of people are getting hurt because of it. It's this isn't even a hypothetical thing anymore. It's not even a people will be hurt. It's people have been hurt. We look where we just had a news story um, where a uh, football player killed uh, a doctor and his family. And it was, oh, things are still building. The this, this story is still um, forming because the man's, the, the whole story is tragic and horrible. But the man ended up killing himself and they his family is saying it, he, it was a mental health issue and it was a mental health case and i don't know the connection but we'll figure it all out eventually i i hope but this is the fact that this, these stories are now just a part of our everyday life it's it, it's damning it, it's damning in the fact that we have failed uh in the American mental health care system. Yeah. And if we don't fix it, these stories are going to be more, even more commonplace than they already are.
0: So, what I'm doing in this project is I started off looking at esports because there was a, a huge problem with burnout. So, I decided to use esports as a soft case study and basically see it as a really extreme work condition where you're there for like ten five to like actually not even five that's that's just a kind of a snippet but like probably like 18 hours on the desktop and then when i continued to explore i found that you know students teachers people working remote were, were burning out too because it's such a you know zoom is such a lack lackadaisical engagement and then Going further from there, it started kind of showing that, like, you know, these things of professional development, burnout, anxiety, depression, were really kind of categorized or kind of like connected to extreme work conditions, long hours, little breaks. And like Eddie mentioned earlier, aspects of her were social justice. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Tara Furiani. Uh, Of not the HR lady. And she broke it down like, you know, we need to have um, leaders really kind of pave the way for change. And as I'm kind of going into this, I'm doing research on artificial intelligence and all this. And it's great that you brought all that up because it's reaffirming all the research I've done in a real life setting that even dates back to like 20 years ago and how it's changing now. I'm trying to develop some kind of platform or system. And it seems like it's also gonna have to be, there's a a very big physical aspect of it because people need like a kit or something from a previous interview. Um, And then there has to be this digital aspect because there are people that don't have access to it like in in the rural areas or um, aren't able to always have like the help that they need immediately. And kind of like how, how thinly budgeted and how stretched all this is, what, what would benefit most this system? And what would that look like f- for the
2: tangible aspects?
0: And then what would that look like for the digital aspects? The
2: particular uh, system of education, so special education or... Like mental health services. Mental health services. Um, I, I think it's good that you bring up the rural areas because um, that is a very big issue. Um, I, I think overall, just more outreach, more outreach and if you integrate AI in, into your outreach and engagement, you. I think it would be best if it's as human as possible like the ai should be within the program itself not necessarily the interface that you're like if you can have some sort of uh ai that helps you arrange your appointment your virtual appointment while you're you know beginning to talk with somebody or even if it is some kind of avatar with a real, well, you have a real person talking to you. Like if you want to keep the um, confidentiality between your, like, let's say you do have a uh, suicide hotline and you make it into a uh, virtual element, you really could use the avatar system for that. That would be incredibly beneficial because You would be, you would have someone who's reaching out to you, and they could be cloaked in whatever this generic avatar thing is. And it would probably, it would have to be something that's not customizable, just some generic avatar that everybody uses. That way, you couldn't ever pick anyone out by it. Mm. Don't. I think if you customize something like that, you're defeating the purpose. You want it to be um, as generic as possible to maintain the confidentiality of, of that <coughs> and so if you were going to do something like that through an avatar then i think you should also have the other avatar of your mental health provider or therapist or counselor or whatever that should be the reverse and should be um, always look I I think it should look just like that person. That way you you have that trust issue. Even though you have the technological divide, you would have, if I was creating the system, (laughs) it would have something to where they could look up the actual picture of the person that's getting them help. Like, let's say I call, I, I use this system and, oh, it's Chris, H from pasadena i can look up click the link i see their real picture it looks just like their avatar i feel a little better because i know i'm talking with a human being hmm. yeah there could be some ai the interface and stuff like that maybe an ai asking entry level entry questions as you're um you know filling out a form or something like that but when you're actually reaching out, I think it has to be as comfortable. And I think for most people, when you say as comfortable as possible, you mean as human as possible. Because there's going to be, especially when you talk about the age gap, when you have older people. I know my, my late father would not be talking to a robot if my, my mother actually had a uh, virtual doctor's appointment. And they actually carry the phone. Well, they have a tablet. She's at her home and she's she's uh, waiting for the um, interface to begin. And so, so she has this blank like home screen. And then when it's on, she sees the the actual tablet they use for the doctor. It was they laid it on the bed in the actual room. So they give the tablet its own personal private room and then the clinician comes in and talks directly to the tablet like it's a patient, like my mom's there. It's so bizarre. Mm -hmm. But I admire their, uh, I admire how they strive to maintain uh, one kind of that normalcy of it where you're like, yeah, that's if you were really there, you would be sitting on that bed. And two, it's probably a lot easier for the doctor to do that. It seems, it probably seems a little less weird because you always go into that room and expect to see people. So by keeping, I, 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 even though it seemed a little weird, I admire that sort of uh, trying to maintain a level of human warmth, human interaction, (laughs) because with the pandemic, that's incredibly hard. And when it comes to mental health issues, I think maintaining humanity and human connections is, it's monumental.
0: What about like, if there was some kind of kit? <coughs>
2: that, like, yeah. Um. Well, I think, I think the way to do it would probably be, and this is where you would have to get some sort of, uh, you would almost you would almost have to have some sort of government system funding this or supporting it or something. You would have to have a tremendous amount of funding for this to work. But what I would do is similar to what they do with very a lot of school systems. My daughter's school system actually I provide a hotspot like that. I provide a. a my daughter's school system provides a an iPhone hotspot and a, uh, Chromebook and that would be the kit. Basically you would have everything you need preloaded into you'd provide a hotspot and you provide a laptop preloaded with the interface you would need. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be pretty, and maybe, um, a booklet with the directions or, or, uh, some video or media with the directions or something, some kind of interface. And I would also include, um, a video with or either a video or a handwritten letter or something, something human, you know, something connecting that together. But, um, if you wanted to create a kit to, uh, reach out to those unconnected rural uh, communities, uh, I think that would be the way to go, especially with a hotspot, because there's so many... Um, well, well, growing up in a rural community, my grandparents didn't even have cable TV until 1999, I think it was. So they didn't even have... I, no, it was like 1996. So for years, there, and there's still even more remote areas than that, that don't even have cable or satellite, let alone internet. So, if you had the funding, if you, if I had like the magic checkbook and could do it, uh, some sort of satellite phone system that could, uh, even in the most remote places, you could be connected and go through that a uh, program like that. But it would it would require a lot of money.
0: Mm. So, you no know, one of the, the other things I'm trying to, to bring in there is, like, these... I'm doing some certificate training from Geek Therapeutics. Um, they're an awesome group. And I'm taking... I finished up some um, certifications in using tabletop RPGs or and role-playing games um, to address kind of, like, um, you know, as, as a therapeutic device. And... Part of that is um, some of the other certificates I'm working on that that are part of this programming are looking at pop culture, like comics, um, VR, um, even memes as a form of kind of just like expression and communication. Um, And we had been talking earlier and he had mentioned that you did something similar in your bachelor's study on comics and bullying.
2: Yeah, I actually... um was studying i i wrote i did a study on a phenomenon called gamers gate which came out um i'm trying to remember the year when it started coming out it was around 2016 2017 and it was i'm not going to name any of the specific players because i don't want to give them (laughs) publicity hey the bully players because they they have plenty of publicity but um it stemmed from a particular uh comics journalist and i I use the word comics journalist very uh, the term comics journalist very liberally because this was a person who uh didn't come from any of the mainstream comic sites uh didn't come from any of the Wasn't really like a major vetted person, just an angry person on the internet and um, started a campaign that ended up going onto Twitter. It it started singling out Marvel Comics and their uh, diversity campaign, which wasn't necessarily a campaign as much as it was a publishing outreach called Marvel Now where they cha- they were trying to get more people who watched the movies, the MCU, they were trying to get more people who watched those to read the books, which makes a lot of sense to me. You would want to have both media mediums <coughs> a little uh, similar. So, and then um, they were also doing this thing where they were kind of... Uh, doing legacy characters. And so you would have the Incredible Hulk would have another person becoming the Incredible Hulk uh, whose name was Amadeus Chow and he was an Asian American character. And then you would have um, minority roles, uh, other minority roles be um, filling in for a Captain America or Iron Man or I don't remember the specifics, but it was i thought a very noble enterprise i thought it was something i I have a um, daughter who's half latina half uh, daughters who are half latina half caucasian a european american half mexican american half european american and i think it's important for them to see role models that look like them whether it's real people like kamala harris or you know fictional characters i think it's important And basically the, the, the idea was from this particular critic was that because you're having these characters um, being presented in these books, it was forcing diversity and which I think is a silly argument. It's, It's a silly argument. Because you can't force anybody... If you don't want to read the book, then don't read the book. If you disagree with um, a new female Captain America, don't read the book. That's your choice. However, then when it started to become a problematic issue, the the campaign, comics gave, was when the characters, they would start out in their own books. Uh, I mean, they would start out in... uh, like. The spinoff of Iron Man would start in Iron Man. Spinoff of Hulk would start in Hulk. Then they would get their own individual books. What Marvel was doing, and I 100% commend them for this, I think it's a great thing, is if they were having a solo book about a black character, they were going to have a black writer write that character. If they were going to have a solo book about a gay character, they were going to seek out a gay writer to write that character and book made perfect sense to me yeah. I, I think it's it's wonderful uh, representation and also you're giving people a job who normally would not get that so then Comicsgate went from force a, a faux campaign of oh you're forcing diversity on me too. now you're doing diversity hires and you're taking jobs away from real comics fans and so that was the problem is this group was sort of trying to use their when you analyze everything the group says and does it's easy to see it's easy to just say it was a very much misogynistic based group not necessarily a racist group however there were many racist elements in the group. There is actually a guy the one person I can name who was involved um, his name was Vox Day who if you research this person he was a writer who wrote some comics and he ended up He's he ended up being revealed as a white supremacist um, who has a very big web presence and I may be wrong I do believe he had some involvement in the uh, January 6th um, Capitol riot. Um so there was definitely there are definitely controversial figures in this movement but um so what what you ended up seeing was these this victimhood <laughs> this vi- where the comics gave people who weren't professionals were saying like the man who started this whole movement he was not actually a professional he had public he had uh submitted things but he wasn't he was more of a comics journalist than a comics professional Mm. however his stance was that because of this what he saw as forced diversity hires they were taking jobs away from people like him and so what you had is a bunch of quote unquote people like him, which, you know, were cisgender white males <laughs> um, backing him up. And then it sort of became anyone who was hired by it, mostly Marvel. They're, they're, uh, I'm not sure why their hatred was laser focused on marvel at this point but it it pretty much was at marvel and so anyone that marvel hired became a target if they weren't cisgender white men so it really broke out around uh, oh i think around the death of flo steinberg who was stan lee's um they called her the gal friday because in the original Marvel Comics bullpen, you had uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, uh, Joe, uh, John Romita, and then you had Flo Steinberg, the lone woman among all these guys. And she was, she was legendary. She was a, one of the first, not first female independent publishers, just a first independent comic book publisher. She was one of the first, not the first, but one of an early band of like independent underground comic books. After she left Marvel, she was publishing her own stuff. Well, after her death, a number of new Marvel hires, uh, relatively new Marvel hires, um, went to, I think it was in New York. It could have been because they have offices here in California, too. But they went out and had milkshakes and it was all young women and they they did some innocuous post on twitter and i forget the name of the woman uh, the young woman who had posted this but uh she just posted this very innocuous post like the marvel milkshake crew and uh hashtag like we love flo steinberg and it's very simple hey, who would possibly be offended by that then you had all these comics gate guys just attacking her and then going on to other people who, attack, who were tagged in that picture and attacking them and it just became this horrific chain of really misogynistic hate and um, which then took a turn into transphobic hate and it just became a very weird horrific thing and i believe a few of the people who were targeted ended up just leaving twitter altogether and and it was also it also fed in around because you know you have comic comic fans and comic conventions often feed in with game fans and game game conventions and film fans and film conventions and things like that um, cuz you know if you were to go to comic con now there's very little comic in the comic con. It's mostly other aspects. So this also sort of fed into the Star Wars. Um, I forget her name. There was an Asian American actress who was in um, the Star Wars movie, the middle one. Oh, Rogue One. Uh, no, it was whatever the one is after Force Awakens, uh, the Last Jedi.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, I think it's the Last Jedi. Um, that actress has a major plot point, and actually, she's very cool in the movie. I, I really like her storyline. And for whatever reason, she was um, shamed, it, fat shamed, race shamed, everything on Twitter. And it was sort of this convergence of the comics gay guys and the gamers gay guys, along with some other just subhuman bullies Mm -hmm. and it sort of goes into the negative side of avatars because yes you did have your major players in the comicscape movement that they can't hide their name because they're you have the main guy who started it all who really you know (coughs) doesn't have that great of a name for himself but then you had a few artists and um, a few artists and writers who were actually big names, as recent as like 2006 or even later, like 2013, 14, big names with Marvel who bought into this and said, yeah, you know what? Marvel is forcing diversity. And so you had big name creators buying into this crap. And while there isn't, supposedly isn't any, Hierarchy now, it, that's what they claim. It, the people who run or whatever they claim it's this independent group of like minded, in my mind, hate mongers. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> they claim that there's no hierarchy. But however, when you have celebrities in your group, of course, there's a hierarchy because then those celebrities immediately become the face of the group. So there are several celebrity comic artists who if you were a comic fan between 1990 and 2020, you would know who I'm talking about, which is why I'm not going to mention them. They don't deserve uh, any publicity for that to, um, They're just on a whole other level because it's almost like everyone around them has the anonymity, everyone around them, all the people who, um, Are supporting them on these chat rooms and what have you and on twitter and everywhere else their supporters have the anonymity but they don't so it's very bizarre to kind of sit back and watch some of these people they they even have podcasts on youtube where they will just go out and trash female comic creators gay comic creators trans comic creators comic creators of color doesn't matter they will just trash them and if you criticize them then they'll trash you criticizing them and um they were actually hate shaming one of their critics this was sometime last year i saw this video who had cancer and they were attacking her saying oh now she's just saying oh i have cancer feel sorry for me blah blah and it's just you cross this and I think it is also because of the anonymity of their supporters, because they have what may seem like to them a lot of supporters. It's sort of like you create this bubble world. You create, this is also sort of what you see, not to be political, but what you see with the recent QAnon mm-hmm. conspiracy um, conspiracy theory is you have, you have, I think that's what's within these, Gamergate or Gate or whatever they start out as these groups attacking something or or um, pro- kind of uh, protesting something <coughs> and then eventually they become the norm or mm-hmm. at least a norm system operating outside or maybe within the regular system. Case in point real quick, you had early on, you had in uh, conservative politics, you had the, and not early on, like the 2000s, you had the Tea Party movement. Mm-hmm. You don't hear anyone mention the Tea Party movement now. That is because what was a movement eventually became the mainstream Republican Party. Those guys who were all the Tea Player, uh, Tea Player, the Tea Party movers and shakers, they're just in the mainstream. So the danger of these subsystems, especially harmful ones like Gamergate, is if they do, in fact, build up enough traction, they will become legitimate systems on, in their own right. And you now see publishing communities working with Gamergate, and so I mean Gamergate, at ComicsGate. They're independent, and sometimes it creates this stigma where there was a colorist that was working with one of these companies, and he left once he found out that they were tied with Gamergate, or you're saying Gamergate, once they found out they were tied with Comicsgate, and he didn't want that, and he, you know, who wants to be attached to that? Yeah. So it does kind of create this toxicity that uh, can really eat at... The mainstream as well. Yeah,
1: you
2: know,
0: that's a really good point. um One of the, one of the big things, and I, I want to tie all this back to mental health. Yeah. One of the big things is that I've observed is that there is an element of toxicity within these communities, gaming, comics, and so forth. There's movement to change that, but there's also the, you know these groups and and stuff that are very adamant in those ways. Is that a mental health issue?
2: Like I. I and that's a great question because it, I think there's a yes and there's a no because, which I don't mean to be a cop-out, mm-hmm. but I think you have, you have a matter of basic human insecurities coupled with a matter of mental illness. Like I think that it, there's some issues where it's, it's one or the other and there's some issues where it's both Mm -hmm. and i think what you have is sort of the now i never actually heard this term so i'm sort of like coining it myself but you have the self-perceived endangered species uh (laughs) phenomenon where particular groups start to see social uh social trends and social changes, and and they get intimidated or scared or what have you that they are no longer the dominant factor within that system. You, I think that is what you saw feed the rise of Donald Trump and then QAnon, and mm-hmm. I think that's what feeds the rise of people like uh, the comicscape movement because you had somebody who felt that they were being, and this is just by analyzing the movement, but you had not just one person, several people who through their actions and through their words come off sounding as if they were very, they felt that they were robbed and they felt that they should have had their moment in the sun and it was given to somebody or somebodies some people peoples who they seem are undeserving and that's sort of like they feel like they're the endangered species and they how dare you take what is their entitled uh whatever it may be whether you have like the industries or you have people feeling like you're taking my country but whatever um mm-hmm. it's i feel there's sort of this Is it a mental illness? Perhaps, perhaps it is a shared uh, sort of modern day mental illness created through, uh, well, created through technology in one half because we have means now to encapsulize forms of thought, forms of thinking that we never had before when my i know when my grandparents would want to get the news you go and get the newspaper and you yeah you were only privy to the information that that whatever that newspaper organization and was printing however you you read everything like the opinion pieces everything was there and you absorbed it whether you agreed with it or not you still read it and you could debate and you could now that's not there so much because we have different um, delivery systems. Mm. You have, like, for political things, you can go any, no matter what your political leaning, you can find an echo chamber to plug into. Yeah. The same is said for comics. If you want to find a comic where there's diversity, you will find it. If you want to find a comic where there is no diversity, You're going to find it. And you're going to find like-minded creators who don't want diversity. The fact is, I think the mental illness lies in how you're able to deal with letting go and accepting change. I think not accepting change is wherein the mental illness lies. Like, you don't have the capacity to take a deep breath and realize I'm 40. Maybe Spider-Man's just... Maybe the new Spider-Man stuff isn't for me. Because you know what? It's not. You're not the target group anymore. Mm. And yeah, as a nerd, (laughs) it's hard to accept that. It's hard to accept that the X-Men cartoon, whatever one comes out, isn't written for me anymore. It was written for me in 1993, (laughs) but not now. And I think that's part of it is... If you do not have that capacity to accept that, then maybe there is an underlying underlying mental issue. Okay, so, you know, I've seen through my geek
0: therapy training, using cosplay, using comics, and um, even media like like films for Iron Man and stuff, to kind of break down and help kind of like address things. Like one of the, one of the big ones that I just finished up right now. Was a certificate and consensual flirting using tabletop RPGs as a system to kind of teach and simulate scenarios. And oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah, because one of the things I found out was there's all these problems with misogyny and, you know, dating. And part of that comes through where like people kind of seek therapy for that, you know, relationships or um, even just kind of like having like moments to talk to their therapist. Which is great, and so now I'm kind of wondering if, like, you know, because that's the negative side. I wonder if there is a way to use this media to really kind of help integrate people into all that. Because I don't agree with this the statement that like diversity is for among people. I don't. I don't condone any violence towards BIPOC individuals, LGBTQ plus individuals, and there seems to be a lot of fear based on like just what i'm hearing from you as well as what i'm hearing from like you know media when you're you're watching the news and you hear all this um vice did a really good one about this racist family not wanting to be in there and there's this fear like constant statement of well it's either them or us and they're they're trying to take our place in the world and I also look at some of the environments and the way that the media that they consume media seems to be problematic, and the way to kind of transition that it's like saying we're not taking any away from you. We're just building this space up bigger so that other people <laughs> that haven't had that opportunity can come in and also have a space in in these in these areas, um, you know, without ousting anyone. And I, I think that there seems to be some areas for opportunities professional development and also kind of like therapeutic processes that help people out and that we're trying to be as simple as possible oh yeah yeah (laughs) um you know
2: it's Uh, me too you you don't want to single out one particular uh, group or their mode of thinking yeah
0: and my work is more to address these underlying problems and to change the the issue at the very core the like the person is is spouting some some very toxic and destructive statements and behaviors and actions but what's behind that is kind of like seems to be a of thinking and how that behavior and how that method of thinking has developed can be potentially changed so with that i've been looking at games for kind of like behavioral uh therapeutic practices and simulations and a lot of stuff what do you feel if developing a game playable package for to help out with anxiety burnout and even professional development um amongst other things uh,
1: because it just kind of
0: goes on what would that what would that game kit look like what would be the, the best target age range and what do you feel would make it
2: accessible it's a good question it's a it's a complex question yeah as far as the age range i think where technology is concerned um no matter what you're trying to uh what your goal is I think the earlier the better if you start these programs at a young age mental health programs should be started at at a young age I I think the first program if you were doing something uh, to address mental health is self-esteem awareness for young children I mean that could be something as simple as a uh an app in a you know you see these things uh utilized through abc mouse you see these things the baby shark thing has an app (laughs) which um you could utilize something as simple as that but i believe the earlier the intervention the better because the stronger a person's self-esteem is and and there's studies to prove this I can't uh, recite you them Mm. verbatim at the moment but um, the studies do show that the earlier there is mental health intervention the more positive the effects are and how many people with a wonderful self-esteem do you see uh, you know leaping off buildings you don't you don't see that sort of thing and I'm not making light of that it's you don't if somebody has a more elevated self-esteem because there was this early intervention you're going to see a lot less crisis so i think as far as age range goes early intervention as far as uh complexity goes i think it all depends on the situation like if you're having um older individuals um you know baby boomers and maybe uh earlier you know your 50s or what have you you would have you should probably pair whatever technology intervention you're using should be paired with a very good uh, call center or (laughs) something where you can or even uh, chat online or something but you need to have that human element and if you are using an AI it better be 100% convincing, (laughs) which is a whole other scenario later down the road. I mean, we could come to a, I believe we probably will come to a level in our lifetime where these counselings could be just uh, facilitated by a pre-programmed persona. I I mean, we could probably see that within the next 20 years. Mm. Um, You
0: know, what about making it accessible. Let's say that we can not get AI. Would something like role-playing for, for young children be good?
2: Oh, yeah. We use that a lot in my experience. Um, interface could be something even uh, technology could be dice and a board. I mean, uh, dice and a game board.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: When um, I was working with speech and language, we used bingo games. And because they facilitated speech, you would have uh transportation bingo and a hey, this is a bus, and then you know you'd work on words this student has a hard time with you b words or g words or what have you, and so you would try to push those words on that uh, student using that so i i think I, like you said with when it comes to rural areas or areas that or even areas. Let's get into this for a second. When you talk with family um, engagement, some families don't trust technology. Some families don't want technology. I grew up in um, a rural community where my family wasn't like this, but there was a neighboring family on a farm uh, near where my grandpa lived. The kids were around my age. I never saw them. They didn't go to school. They were homeschooled. And I found out much later, they didn't have a, f- they, they had one, uh, like phone in the barn, like a farm phone, but they were completely cut off. They had no television. They had no, um, I, I don't even know if they had a car outside of the tractor that they had. So everything was, ve- I saw like, them on bikes every once in a while, but, um, and it was all by choice i later found out that this family just chose to live that way that isolated way Hmm. (laughs) and they lived in such a community that they could do it but we can't pretend that um there isn't this animus towards technology because some people some people don't just don't trust it and so yeah you you bring up a very valid point that there would have to be some sort of uh alternative and that would probably have to be an analog type situation
0: so kind of looking like that if this were a final deliverable like a hybrid solution
2: maybe
1: have yes, that yeah.
2: an option to do one or the other yeah i the thing is when you look at a family like the one i spoke of the more as technology progresses it becomes a point where you can't avoid it and you have to embrace at least some form of technology. I have a I have a smartphone that I just only had for like maybe the past two years. I was doing flip phones up until that point. And texting got to the point where it was so much easier to do it with that. So I am sure a family like the one I spoke of, I'm sure they there's cell phones in that house now. <laughs> I'm sure there's A completely different structure because it just comes to the point where adapt or perish as far as technology is concerned and it's sad but systems have to adapt and perish as well and i think that's what we're seeing is especially in response to the pandemic is we're seeing a breakdown in the the systems that were being neglected are breaking down and the systems that were being fostered or nurtured are still afloat. (coughs) And I think that we have to step in now and take whatever survived the pandemic and make sure that it's catastrophe proof for whatever may come next.
1: Mm
0: You know, so that's kind of <laughs> everything I have to ask. And you've been really insightful. Well, thank you. And, you know, breaking this down. And, you know, that was that was one of the big concerns I had earlier, too, like some of the negatives of using this pop media. Um, so that's something I have to consider while developing the solution to how it can be abused. So I'll be working on some contingency plans for that because... Now I'm leaving this kind of discovery phase, which is like the research. And that kind of entails just starting to start to connect all the pieces in the defined phase, which is going to be the next episode. And, you know, new information is always going to come in. But at some point, you know, we we see so many people out there suffering so many things about depression, anxiety, burnout and and suicide that I need to start making. And I need to start pushing into that progress. And I had a mentor that would always say, you have to make in order to iterate forward and develop it. What's great about that is that, you know, this this first level, it's gonna need to make room for artificial intelligence, but it's not it's probably not gonna be able to push that out. But iterating forward, we could probably see the potential for bring that in a lot more. With that, thank you, Ryan. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah. And thank you guys so much for listening in. I hope that this was an insightful conversation that could help out. And like I said, I am moving out of the discover phase. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to keep collecting more information and improving upon what I have. But it's at that phase, like I just said, the define phase, so the second of the two days, where we're going to start connecting everything, really asking the big question of what this platform is going needs to be and then move into the develop and then deliver phase. On a final note, thank you guys for listening in. I'll be moving into the next phase in the next episode. Till then, stay fantastic. Red Mage out.